Then Jesus went home, and the crowd came together again, so that they could not even eat. When his family heard it, they went out to restrain him, for people were saying, He's gone out of his mind. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebul, by the ruler of the demons, he casts out demons. And he called them to him and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his property without first tying up the strong man. Then indeed the house can be plundered. Truly, I tell you, people will be forgiven for their sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit can never have forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they had said, He has an unclean spirit. Then his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother, your brothers and sisters are outside asking for you. And he replied, Who are my mother and my brothers? Looking at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother, my sister, and my mother. This is the word of the Lord. All right, let's remind ourselves what we know already about Mark's gospel. It is the oldest of the four. It is the shortest of the four. It's Luke who tells us about shepherds out in their fields, keeping watch over the flock by night when an angelic chorus visited them and told them about a baby born in Bethlehem. It was Matthew who told us about the Magi, these studiers of the stars who thought they saw something strange and unusual and followed it all the way to this little nowhere place called Bethlehem where the first Gentiles got a look at Mary's baby. Not in Mark's gospel. Just right to the beginning, Jesus is already an adult. He's down at the Jordan River, ready to be baptized by John. So by the time we get to this third chapter, already he's been casting out demons, healing folks, even healing a man who had been paralyzed for years. And now crowds are pressing in on him. He's not getting to bed at a normal time. He's getting up before his normal time. He's not even able to eat. And word goes 20 miles down the road to his hometown. He's lost his mind. So Mary and the children come to see about him in Capernaum. Capernaum uh, sat right on the top of the Sea of Galilee, that freshwater lake. Uh, the ruins are still there. The Roman Catholic Church has done a wonderful job of re-stating uh, this little village, digging it up, setting the columns up again, even the old synagogue, uh, back from the town of Capernaum. It's about 20 miles from Jesus' hometown. When it says they came to restrain him, this Greek word for restrain is actually often used for arrest. They came to arrest him and take him home. They think he's lost his mind. We believe Jesus used the trade of his father to support his family. Scholars note that Joseph is not mentioned in this passage. They're sure he must have died before this time. Uh, we know that there were other brothers and sisters 
their brothers are named, four of them. We have sisters, meaning at least two, maybe more. So Jesus was oldest of at least seven, maybe more. If Joseph died young, then it would have fallen to the oldest child to keep working, to help be sure the family had enough to eat. Nazareth today is a city of about 75,000 people. That was not true in biblical times. It was a small little village. People who had lost their land at any time in the past were destitute. They were dependent upon every day's work to provide enough for the evening meal. Uh, scholars believe that Joseph and Jesus behind him were not able to find enough work in Nazareth, as small a little village as it was, but instead they would have walked to a thriving city right nearby, not mentioned in the Bible, but called Separus, uh, a Greek city uh, that was growing. And if they were able to help build, then perhaps that's where they found work. Suddenly, at about age 30, perhaps when the youngest child of Mary is now old enough to fend for herself, himself, Jesus goes down to the Jordan to be baptized by John, comes back up to the Sea of Galilee, and begins casting out demons, causing lame people to walk, blind people to see, deaf people to hear. They think he's lost his mind. That's where we come to today's text. So I've underlined four things for you to think about. The very first is this. Mark says there were scribes. Now, these were the astute studiers of Hebrew scriptures, those who should have known God's word better than anybody else have come down, and that means in elevation. They came from south up to north for us, but Jerusalem higher up in the hills than the Sea of Galilee. So they came down from Jerusalem. It's about 80 miles, that walk and then confronted him, saying that he was doing all this by the powers of Beelzebul. Now, Beelzebul, scholars believe, changed spelling over the, over the centuries. That originally it was not B-E-E-L, but B-A-A-L. Baal was the old Canaanite Syrian god of fertility, whose consort was named Astarte. Uh, because it doesn't rain for seven months in Jerusalem, they thought the gods went to sleep in the summertime. And in the fall, if you could make enough noise, you could wake them up. They would start stomping around the heavens, thunder, then it would rain, and the new crops could begin to grow. Baal, Baal, Zebul, meaning God of the house or God of the temple for pagans. But the Hebrews, as far back as 2 Kings in the Hebrew Scriptures, had changed the last letter on the name so that it became Lord of the Dung Pile or Lord of the Flies. William Golding chose it for the title of his novel, The Lord of the Flies. Jesus is being accused of being in some kind of consort with the devil to chase out devils. We know how quickly people can turn, how one moment they're screaming for you because you've made a lame man to walk, and the next moment they can be accusing. A week from tomorrow night, our downtown Rotary Club is having its biggest fundraiser of the year, <clears throat> the IBA Awards Dinner. 
Uh, we've had some really outstanding athletes come for that dinner as honorees. Last year, we really hit it on the head when Drew Brees was the male honoree, and a few months later, he would be voted the most valuable player in the Super Bowl. Uh, this year, the keynote speaker is Scott Brooks. Uh, he is the head coach of the Oklahoma City Thunder basketball team, a mediocre team a year ago, a very good team this year, who stretched the Lakers all the way to a sixth game in the playoffs before they lost. He was just named Coach of the Year in the NBA. After I'd heard that and knew that he was going to be our speaker a week from tomorrow night, I was particularly interested in an article in the Wall Street Journal that pointed out that Scott Brooks ought not feel too secure. That a year ago, the coach of the Cleveland Cavaliers was named Coach of the Year, and exactly 400 days later, he was fired. In fact, this article said, of the 10 NBA coaches named Coach of the Year the last 10 years, eight of them were out of a job within three years. What have you done for me lately, is what they want to know. What have you done for me lately? And so one day, the crowds are pressing in on Jesus, and the next day, this accusatory finger, you are doing the work of the devil. Okay. Number two, how can Satan cast out Satan, Jesus said. Are you thinking? Do you understand what you're saying? I'm telling you, you have to bind the strong man before you can go in and take what he's claimed as his own. Jesus was about binding the evil forces of this world in order to free, to free all of the goodness God intended for God's creation. You have to bind the demons in order to free that which is good. Kathy Kania has written recently about going to the farm where she grew up to visit her mom. <clears throat> Kathy now lives in a big city, and she said many of her dreams have been realized. Uh, she dreamed of a good education. She dreamed about a job of real responsibility and lots of income. And much of that has come to her, she said. But here now in middle age, more pressure than she had ever imagined. Decisions so tough to make sometimes when you have to cut back and cut back to make the organization survive. She decided it's time to go visit her mother. Her mother's nearly 90 years old, but still lives on the little farm where Kathy grew up. So Kathy flew back to New York, farm upstate, and she said she and her mom had a great day. Jeanette was wonderful just to walk through mom's yard, let her point out all of her flowers and how this one needed weeding a little more. Kathy thought it was beautiful. Sat on the front porch as the sun went down. They cooked their evening meal, ate together, just the two of them, washed up the dishes. And then Kathy said, the part I dreaded, my mom said, why don't we do a jigsaw puzzle? She said, all my growing up years, my mother loved jigsaw puzzles. And I never understood why you would take a beautiful painting or a beautiful photograph, glue it on cardboard, cut it up into 400 pieces, and try to put it back together. So I'd always begged off, oh, mom, I've got a headache. Oh, mom, I've got a big day tomorrow. I need to go on to bed. But she'd been so sweet to me. She's nearly 90 years old, so 
I said, fine. Now this story spoke to me because my mother loved jigsaw puzzles. When I was a little boy, my father had come home from World War II, a decorated veteran, an alcoholic as well. We didn't get to go to movies very much. We had no television yet. And so when my dad would say at breakfast one morning, tonight I'm taking everybody to the movies, we got all gussied up and waited. And it was not unusual for him not to come, not to come, not to come. And my mom would say, why don't we do a jigsaw puzzle? And the three of us and my mom would gather around a card table and put together a jigsaw puzzle. So Kathy's mom said, come on, Kathy. I've got a new one of a county fair. It'll be fun. And she dumped all the pieces in the middle of the table. And then she said, Kathy, let me show you how to do this. First, we turn every piece right side up. Second, we find all the pieces that have a straight side. We put together the border first. And Kathy said, when we got that done, it didn't look so big as I thought. And now Mom said, look for colors. This man's blue shirt. This woman's yellow blouse. This brown cow. This white sheep from the county fair. And then as I started seeing blue, yellow, brown, white, Mom said, and don't force the pieces. When you find two that really fit, they'll go together easily enough. And Kathy said, when we finished that county fair puzzle, I slept really well that night. You have to bind some things so that you can free others. And that's the business Jesus was in. Third thing, that part about the unpardonable sin. Let me say first off, the scholars say if you're still concerned about it, you haven't committed it. Because the unpardonable sin is saying no, no, no to anything that's good and right and beautiful until you can't even recognize God's hand at work. Dr. Sylvia Campbell is a surgeon in Tampa, Florida. She's written that she'd been to Haiti several times as a medical missionary, a volunteer in mission. And so when she heard about that horrible earthquake last January the 12th, she felt, I need to be in Haiti. She said, I had to pull my schedule into shape. I had commitments the next five days. I really had to keep people I needed to operate myself. And then I flew to Haiti. I'd seen the images on television late at night. The buildings tumbled down, people frantically searching for one more survivor, one more survivor under all that rubble. She said, every time I'd been to Haiti, I'd seen this hemisphere's poorest people 
but I'd always seen happy faces, sparkling eyes, beautiful children, grateful, grateful patients. When I got off the plane in Haiti, she said, I saw gaunt faces, no sparkle in the eyes, no warmth in the voices. They were walking zombies. For the next three days, she said, the medical teams got up early and stayed late. That third afternoon, we had aftershocks, big ones. The whole little hospital began to shake. The patients themselves started screaming, and family members who could help grabbed beds and took them outside to be sure the hospital didn't fall down on top of them. Many chose to stay outside once they were there. She said, finally, it was bedtime. There wasn't an available bed. I unrolled my, my bed roll onto the concrete floor, crawled in, finally got off to sleep. I was awakened by pounding, pounding, pounding on the door of the hospital, screams. I ran to the door, and a woman was having a baby right there right on the other side. She was having that baby. There was no time to move her. I just told her, push really hard, and I caught that baby in my hands. All these patients who had been moved outside during the tremors that afternoon suddenly made a sound, sort of a ooh, ah. They had all been awakened by this woman's childbirth, pangs of childbirth, and the pounding on the door. And as I lifted this precious black child, and it started to cry very much alive, I started he hearing, Hallelujah, Hallelujah, thank you, Jesus, thank you, Jesus. And there was the sparkle, and there was the glow. We have a tomorrow, we have a tomorrow. I see the hand of God in what is good, always in what is good. So, number four, John in his gospel talks about those who are still in the dark and those who've moved into the light. Mark talks about those who are outside and those who've come inside. Three times in this brief pericope we read, it says, his mother his brothers and sisters were outside. His own mother, his brothers and sisters, outside. There was a circle of people around him inside. And when those who were in the circle around him inside said, your mother and your brothers and sisters are outside calling for you, he asked, who is my mother? Who is my brother? Who is my sister? Those who are doing the will of my Father who is in heaven. The Reverend John Vanneman is a chaplain at Hillcrest Hospital here in Tulsa. He has recently written about his taking CPE. I didn't take that when I was in seminary. I always had a little problem with seeing blood myself. CPE is clinical pastoral education. 
When I was at Perkins School of Theology, SMU, they took the CPE students to Parkland Hospital. And one of the first things you had to do was watch an autopsy from start to finish. You've seen snippets on CSI television programs. They had to watch autopsy after autopsy, sometimes a small child, sometimes a teenager, sometimes an adult, to understand this human body, how much it can take sometimes, and how frail it can be at other times. The chaplains in charge at Parkland pushed these young seminary students hard to deal with their own mortality, to deal with the fact that you too will end up on a slab like this someday, and they will be treating you like another piece of meat. Do you understand that? That's who you are. From dust you came, to dust you shall return. Now how do you find the presence of God in all of this? You've got to deal with your stuff so that from that point on you can be totally there for the patient and the patient's family. John Vanneman says, I've discovered that it's easy to be with most people in the spring and summer of their lives. It's much tougher to be in the fall and the winter of their lives. There would come a time when Jesus' own mother would be inside, clinging to the son whom she loved better than life. And at least one of his brothers, James, became the cornerstone of the church in Jerusalem after his death and resurrection. It's never too late in this life to come inside.